Wake Up World. You're now tuned in to the Wake Up and Win podcast, and I'm your host, Devon Pouncey. I'm here with a Wake Up and Win alumni, actually. <laughs> He's been here before, <laughs> Dr. Jules Boykoff. How are you doing today? Great. Glad to be back. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. So some of you may remember we had Dr. Jules Boykoff join us um, uh, to talk about the Olympics, not the Winter Olympics, which is what we're getting ready to talk about today, but just kind of general Olympic politics and uh, activism within the Olympics and things that go on with the Olympics and the treatment of people, et cetera, et cetera. And today I'm here with him because uh, you've been a pretty big deal when it comes to uh, releasing news and being in the LA Times and having articles written and things of that sort because you obviously do a lot of research when it comes to the Olympics. So you've been a pretty big voice here as of late in these past couple of weeks with the Winter Olympics taking place. So. I'm glad we can bring you back here to kind of, you know, talk about it a bit. Well, thanks. You know, my wife jokes that I'm a seasonal laborer. <laughs> it's Olympic season, so I've been hard at work. Right, right, right. So, yeah, totally understandable. So we're going to just kind of get straight to it. So um, you wrote an article. Like I said, you had an article published um, with the L.A. Times that you co-wrote with Dave Zirin. And you talked about the Russian doping scandal mm -hmm. and how it affected the Winter Olympics. Can you kind of dig into that a bit and just kind of give the background of it and the effect that it actually had on these Olympic Games um, that just closed out yesterday? Absolutely. So if we go back to 2013, it started to be known in journalistic circles that there was serious doping going on across the board systematically in Russia. And so journalists passed along that information to the International Olympic Committee, who basically did almost nothing. They just yeah. hemmed and hawed. They're the people that run the Olympics, and they didn't want anything staining the games. But people kept pressing ahead, and it turned out then there was a Russian whistleblower who was running the supposed anti-doping lab in Russia that was actually a doping lab. He comes forth with these amazing stories that sound like they came out of like a Russian thriller spy novel, passing urine samples through a tiny hole in the wall. They find out that, in fact, yes, there was serious doping going on. Russia gets penalized ahead of the Rio Olympics, as mm -hmm. your listeners will remember. And then basically the International Olympic Committee kind of sat around and didn't really do much about it until December, just ahead of these Olympics, when they banned Russia from the Olympics. Now, wow. you got to put a big asterisk on that. <laughs> yeah, they for sure. banned Russia, so they couldn't march in behind the Russian flag, they couldn't wear Russian jerseys, but they were able to participate as, quote, Olympic athletes from Russia, end quote, sort of special status. They were hardly neutrals, but they didn't get to have their flag. So in the end, after all that shenaniganizing, about 168 athletes came from Russia to participate in these Olympics in South Korea. That's not really that much fewer than participated in Vancouver, where they had 177 back in 2010. Right. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So um, now I want to dig a little bit more into these here Olympics that just took place. Um, and I want to talk about, we're, we're going to talk about the good stuff. We're definitely going to get to the good stuff. And I want everybody to know that. Uh, I should have probably warned everybody coming into this that we're definitely going to get into, you know, kind of the bad and the grimier and grittier things that take place with the Olympics. But we're also going to talk about the good stuff as well. So bear with us. But I want to talk about um, kind of the labor that takes place mm -hmm. um, and that took place in particular in these winter games. 
and you know the volunteer workers and what it is that they do and kind of the treatment that they receive in comparison to maybe the IOC or the International mm -hmm. Olympic Committee members. Yeah, well, it's sort of one of those hidden stories that happens at every Olympics and rarely gets told, and that is this huge volunteer force shows up to make the Olympics happen. They get their special jackets, they're trying to be as helpful as possible and you know a lot of them have a really good time the thing about it is they don't get paid they are volunteers right and so for starters that winnows the number of people and the type of person that can volunteer i mean you have to be relatively affluent to take off of work not get paid in your regular job for a few weeks right. and then come and volunteer at the olympics so right away you're kind of looking at a relatively privileged slice of the population but once they get there they often find out that they have very little support and that's what we saw here in pyeongchang was that a lot of the volunteers complained that they were getting stuffed in these small rooms to sleep in. They were designed for four people, but they were putting 10 volunteers in these rooms. They were given these tiny portions of food that were not even good portions of food. Right, right. And they were asked to work these incredibly long hours without breaks. And so essentially they were exploited as volunteers. Yeah. And you know, you, you're right to contrast that with the International Olympic Committee. There's about 100 people on the International Olympic Committee, and when they parachute into the Olympic City, they get the treatment, <laughs> yeah. all right? Like, they have special requirements about what temperature the room needs to be in their hotels. Wow. These are five-star hotels. Yeah. You know, they're per diem, they're per diem. On top of all the free stuff they get, they're per diem, if you're on the executive board, is $900 a day. Wow. All right, so contrast <laughs> that with the volunteers that are getting yeah. basically nothing. And You know, that's happened time time again in Rio de Janeiro uh, there was a, a similar army of volunteers that didn't get paid and they save a ton of money about a hundred million dollars they saved in Rio from not having to pay workers right and then that goes straight into the coffers of somebody sometimes it's the International Olympic Committee sometimes it's the local organizers so do you think that when it comes to these volunteers that they may be per se ignorant to the actual treatment that takes place when they have to actually volunteer because maybe a lot of these volunteers just have an amazing love for the Olympics mm -hmm. and for the games because what we see is decorated as, you know, the greatest athletes in the world, uh, kind of almost like the world uniting. It's one of the only common places where you'll see so many different countries and so many different portions of the world actually coming together for any type of event. Mm -hmm. So do you think that it's more maybe of an ignorance or have you even spoken to some volunteers maybe that that would say, you know, we came in thinking that we were volunteering and helping um, this big worldly thing that just brings everybody together. But instead, we got to see how really flawed it was in actually doing so. Yeah, well, I did speak to volunteers when I lived in Rio de Janeiro yeah. at those Olympics, and it was a mix. I mean, some were just really happy to be there, exactly what you're talking about. They had the Olympic spirit. Let's not forget the Olympics are really popular yeah. around the world. They're not popular in terms of cities that want to host them now. Right. That's going down and down. But in terms of the actual Olympics and the sports and the athletes, they're very popular. And people got swept into that. They got excited. They decided they wanted to participate. Uh, but even in Rio, the reality was much different than what they were pitched it was going to be. 
they worked really hard down there again zero pay and the food wasn't adequate right so you know it's kind of one of those things where you get sucked in by the good stuff and then you get there and it's not exactly what you expected right and so when when you talk about not only just how the volunteers are treated um what about like the people who are actually from rio de janeiro or pyeongchang who uh who live there or who own local businesses mm -hmm. and things of that sort um what's the type of treatment they get because usually i would think they also have some type of excitement that these games are coming here and you have so many different people from so many different parts of the world that are coming here and maybe there's some type of a profit that can come with it and you know you're just excited to know that a big event is coming in your home coming to your hometown and i think we have that kind of feel in america as well when it comes to teams or concerts or just anything mm -hmm. like we have the big event coming here to town and most businesses most people that live in these local towns try to figure out a way to either profit from it or you know have some type of a game from mm -hmm. an event like the olympics happening there yeah no question in fact during the bidding process for the olympics the people that are putting forth the bid for each city make big promises about how the locals, the vendors, the entrepreneurs, the small businesses in the area are all going to benefit massively from the Olympics. In the bid process, that's what they always say. Yeah. When it comes down to the reality, however, it's very different. The International Olympic Committee does not play when it comes to their brand management. Yeah. They're monomaniacally focused on it. They protect their brand, they protect their sponsors, and they box out locals a lot of the time, you yeah. don't get to come and sell their wares around the Olympic Stadium. Those are sanitized zones that are just for corporate sponsors. And in these Olympics that just ended in South Korea and Pyeongchang, we saw a bit of this where local ski rental places that were told you're going to make bank during the Olympics is going to be awesome. <laughs> Which would make there. sense during the Winter Olympics especially. Right, yeah. exactly. A but ski company. <laughs> precisely. You would expect to make some money and they were excited, right? And right. The reality came that they were told they had to shutter their businesses a few weeks before the Olympics when the Olympics came in and just took over the mountain, right? So right. You know, skiing rentals were down 80% this year compared to previous years. And so they really got hit hard. There were actually protests from a number of the ski rental places. One of the associations put up a big sign that says that the Olympics kill. They kill our business. And so there's real disappointment in Pyeongchang right now on the mountain, especially because we don't know what's going to happen with a lot of these venues. You know, they built up this really fancy Olympic level ski run that these guys and women could zip down at top rate. But then after the Olympics, it's too fast for regular skiers. I mean, it's just way too difficult. Right. But it's too slow for the professionals who've already been saying, hey, this was a nice time. We had a good time here, but we're not coming back to ski. Yeah. We're not coming all the way over here to South Korea to a basically okay mountain. So right. they're in this weird between zone where they don't really know what they're going to do with the mountain. But, you know, who's going to pay that price? It's going to be the locals who have to figure out how to maintain these venues, what to do with them next. Yeah, so basically they just have these venues here for this two-week extravagant event. Mm -hmm. um, they've also, uh, I would guess that they've also moved some locals because mm -hmm. I don't know if this was just like some open land or if they tore things down to be able to create these luxurious stadiums and, you know, venues. And so with that, you know, how does that kind of come into play with locals who live there and they have to look at these luxurious stadiums and venues that they can do absolutely nothing with. Yeah, except pay for in the future. <laughs> but, 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. So in Rio de Janeiro, in the lead up to those Olympics, 77,000 people were booted from their homes to make way for Olympic structures, transportation, etc. The number was far lower in Pyeongchang, the number of people that were actually displaced for those Olympics. But it's still very real for those people who look around and see these extravagant venues that they're going to have to pay for into the far distant future. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. That's interesting. And I also want to talk about um, kind of the diversity when it comes to the Olympics. I mean, even if we just make it a lot more culturally relative, um, you and I both know, everybody just about knows how much pride has been taken in this new Black Panther movie. Mm -hmm. If we, you know, bring it, make it relevant to here in America, really worldwide, but still it's home for us, you know, being here. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have taken this sense of pride because there's been this all-black cast in a Marvel film. We've never seen anything like it. And, you know, obviously you have many different countries. And I would think that you would think that there isn't a diversity issue when it comes to the Olympics because you do have so many different countries coming here to this common place to play sports, to compete, um, to watch the Olympics, to the enjoy the festivities that come with the Olympics. But uh, there's still, I believe, a diversity issue. And uh, there was one young lady. Um, she is from Jamaica. Her name was Jasmine. She's an Olympian. Her name was Jasmine Finletter Victorian. And there is a video that I saw her post up on Twitter. And actually, Marcus Peters, another guy who is – you know, he's been very active in supporting guys like Colin Kaepernick. He's a cornerback for he was a cornerback for the Kansas City Chiefs. But literally like a few days ago, he was just traded to the Los Angeles Rams. But he was one of those fist in the air guys while the national anthem mm -hmm. was being played. And he supported her. And, you know, she basically quoted or I'm going to quote what she said. Uh, it's important for me that little girls and little boys see someone that looks like them, talks like them and has the same culture as them, you know, when it comes to her participation in the Olympics. So what are maybe some diversity issues that aren't put to the forefront when it comes to the Olympics, but still actually take place and we just may not know or see it? Yeah, I mean, first of all, the U.S. team has really sold itself as being more diverse than ever. And that's definitely a positive thing. There's right. no question about it. It's much more inclusive than the past. But let's not forget that still 92% of the U.S. Winter Olympic team, 92% is white. And 92% is white cisgendered. So, um, you know, there's been a lot of African-American athletes who've made their way into sports like bobsledding, people like Alana Myers-Taylor has almost single-handedly helped recruit play, uh, players to do bobsled who come from other sports like right. track and field or softball. And, you know, that's great. And we had two very outspoken, out gay male athletes who showed us in Technicolor that representation really does matter. It's right. important. I mean, you saw the smooch that was seen around the world, <laughs> Gus yeah. Kenworthy and his boyfriend on live TV and NBC. You know, that matters in terms of having people see the beauty, the complexity, the natural love in, in the world and, and making that normal, if you will. There's huge importance to that. Right. Um, but we have a long ways to go. I mean, the Winter Olympics are essentially sometimes called the White Olympics. Yeah. And half the countries participate in the Winter Olympics that do in the Summer Olympics. So in the Summer Olympics, you're just going to have a whole lot more diversity. And then when you look at just beyond participation, 
you see who's actually winning the medals and taking away then the sponsorships afterwards. And that tends to be people from countries that are already doing really well. So you see, have Norway, right. you know, you have Canada, you have the United States, you have France, um, to a certain degree, South Korea and Japan do well in certain skating sports. Those are all countries that are doing really well economically. So, you know, there's a lot of complexity on the diversity front. But I would say these Olympics have been special because we've seen a lot of new athletes uh, who have never participated in the Olympics before that have really made the games more inclusive. Right, right. So, yeah, like I said, I think I just thought it was real interesting because the way Peter supported her and just being able to see her emotion in that video was telling of like, you know, how she really felt about her culture. And like I said, I think in America, we're seeing a huge sense of that. And I think, like I said, the most recent and prominent example of that is the Black Panther film mm -hmm. that's recently come out. Um, and yeah, obviously, there is, there's just so many different types of movements and things um, where people are fighting for inclusion and people are fighting for, you know, diversity and more representation. So um, I think that was pretty interesting. But I want to now talk about kind of the power and the influence of sport in general, because we've kind of talked about, you know, some of the negative things that I think are actually the most important things to talk about when it comes to these games, because for one, a lot of people don't know that these types of things are going on. And for two, I mean, if you're just, you know, a human being with any kind of love in your heart, you don't want to see these people, whether you know them or not, whether they're strangers, whether they're in a different country, um, you know, whether you really have no relation to them, you still want to see the well-being of other human beings. Just, you know, I think I'm that kind of guy yeah. and you are as well. So <laughs> you just you just care for the well-being of other humans more so than you care about the actual sport. But you still can't deny the fact that the sport holds so much influence that that's what's at the forefront. That's what we're mm -hmm. seeing on TV. That's kind of, you know, the, the decorative and glossy look that the IOC is going for because they're definitely not going to tell you about the some of the issues that we've talked about already because they just be pretty much shooting themselves in the foot. Right. So, you know, I just want to, and then you obviously still bringing it back here to America. You had Laura Ingraham and LeBron James, you know, and him talking politics and the issues that she had with him speaking politics. Obviously, a lot of these politics don't have much to do with LeBron James being a basketball player, but she expressed that, LeBron, you're a basketball player. Stick to it. You know what I mean? But LeBron has a care for, I mean, not athletes, but for people in general and, you know, seeing the progression of society as a whole outside of the sports. So, um, yeah, I just want you to kind of talk about the importance that sports hold when it comes to the intersectionality of it and politics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you may be able to give some examples from the Olympics as well with that. Absolutely. Well, I've been a longtime listener to your podcast. So appreciate, I appreciate how <laughs> you are intersectional and you're willing to wade into the complexities and look at the positives of sport, but also take a serious look at the downsides and figure out how we can kind of fix those things. So, I mean, for starters, I think, you know, your, your audience, I mean, you respect your audience by saying, hey, we can both appreciate the athletes and we can raise some of these difficult questions. Especially, and you and I, especially because we were athletes, you know, right. you, no, that's true. you were a little bit better of an athlete than I was. Well, but. <laughs> I don't know, but 
you know, I mean, I think the Olympics and certainly sport more general, but the Olympics can be this really great lens for opening up conversations with people about really important topics, about racism, about sexism, about homophobia. You know, these things can sometimes be tough to bring up just in regular conversations, especially with people that really don't want to have those conversations. Yeah. But you're sitting there watching the Olympics and something happens. Adam Rapon, this out gay figure skater, does this amazing routine. He's super flamboyant. You can open up the conversation with your uncle who might not otherwise want to talk about him. So sports can be this really important vessel for widening the conversations that can happen. You know, you mentioned LeBron. Yeah. We're in this fascinating moment because LeBron wasn't always this LeBron, right? He no, talked, he wasn't. <laughs> right? In the past, he was about making money and being kind of an icon in that respect. Always And wanting to be the greatest player of all time as well. Like, Absolutely. I mean, and nothing wrong with that as, as the competitor he is and the success he's still having within the game that allowed him to kind of change and become the LeBron that he is today. And I think he, in that same interview um, where he talked about, where he was outspoken about Trump on the Uber ride, on the Uber ride with Kevin Durant and Kerry Champion, um, he also mentioned that about himself. So it was a good mm -hmm. point for you to make. Like, um, people talk about me as if, like, I've changed. And he's like, you're damn right I changed. You know, like, I, if you haven't changed, then there's a problem with you. But definitely over the course of my career and over the course of my life in general, like, sure, I've changed. Right. To his credit. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to his credit in a major way. In fact, we're at the point now where we'd be surprised if LeBron didn't say something about yeah. some of the issues happening. That shows how far he's come in terms of his willingness to speak out, which I think is wonderful. I think a lot of people are thinking about these issues who might not otherwise because they listen to LeBron or Kevin Durant or other people raising these important questions. I mean, for me, with bringing it to the Olympics, you know, and LeBron has participated in the Olympics as well, a lot of the people that come in to the Summer Olympics and play basketball are these mega stars who will go back to their big salaries. But the Winter Olympics are really different. Mm -hmm. These are small sports. It's hard to get the sponsorship deals. The, the snowboarder Chloe Kim, she's loaded down with sponsorships. Uh, you've got all these, you know, Mi Michaela Schifrin, the great skier, um, and all these others that are big names in their sports. They're doing great in terms of sponsorships. But a lot of the athletes in the Winter Olympics will return home. They'll go back to school. You know, we have people that are part-time in school while they train yeah. for their sports, whose names we won't see in the commercials. Right. And who don't, therefore, have the big platform that somebody like LeBron James or even Chloe Kim, should she wish to use it for, for politics and talking about broader issues like LeBron does. So I have immense respect for athletes who do speak out, especially because the cards are kind of against them. You, know, right. you remember how it was. I mean, yeah. can you imagine in playing college basketball and now starting to question the sponsor of your jerseys yeah. you know, because they were made under maybe cruel conditions for the workers? Right. And that'd be very hard to do as a college athlete, and that's why we don't see that they can have their scholarships yanked like that well with the winter olympics a lot of these athletes should they wish to speak out are basically saying see you later to p potential sponsorship deals yeah. that they can get and this is their one little tiny window where they can get some kind of foothold economically yeah and so with that like i said i i understand you know obviously you are into the activism world i'm i'm into it and uh, I think a lot more people are into it now. It's becoming a little bit more common just because of the unique times, especially here in America with, you know, who we have in office and just everything that's going on. You know, a lot of activism is kind of coming to the forefront. Mm -hmm. But 
for those people and for those athletes who may be uncomfortable with actually speaking out. You know, you, you, you can have an immense respect for the ones that do, but how do you motivate or kind of, you know, give maybe some piece of advice to the ones who are still stuck in that place where they haven't said anything or they feel like they want to say something, but they're not going to allow that to interfere with them trying to get the big payday like a LeBron James sure. or just whatever it would be considered a big payday to them. How do you kind of communicate with those type of people in comparison to the people who are just like, you know what, I'm bold enough to just stand up and do it anyway? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, first of all, I don't think that every athlete should become an athlete activist. Right. You have to be ready. You have to know your facts. And it's just not going to be for every single person. Yeah. So for starters, you know, I've worked with Olympic athletes behind the scenes giving them advice on these very questions that you're raising. You know, one, ex one example is a fencer from Team Great Britain or Team GB named Lawrence Halstead, who I've worked with extensively, helped him was, with an essay he was writing, helped him get it placed at The Guardian, where I've written some things before. And then I met him down at the Olympics. We talked about the kind of flack that he might get for speaking out and yeah. how you might respond to it. And so I have a lot of respect for people who do become athlete activists. The, it's tough in this particular climate. You're going to get a lot of blowback. You're going to get a lot of pushback from people. Now, we're in a special moment, I would say, that I think helps account for LeBron James, Kevin Durant, yeah. others for speaking out. And that's the fact that we have vibrant social movements. Right. We've got a Black Lives Matter movement that's put a real dent in the discourse around racial politics in the United States and police brutality. Uh, we have a really vibrant native movement who was yeah. involved in Idle No More in Canada and also the Dakota Access Pipeline in the Dakotas. And so that creates space for athletes to move into and say things and to be public. The other thing, of course, is what you alluded to. You know, Donald Trump is the president. Yeah. And when he gets his Twitter thumbs going, God knows <laughs> what he's going to say next. He's right? open, but he's opening the door, it seems to me. Like, like you know, obviously everybody where it was... I would say scared would be the correct word. Um, when it when he got into the office, you almost seen it was a sense of fear that kind of overcame a lot of Americans. Uh, obviously, there was a sense of happiness as well for mm -hmm. some Americans because they voted him in and he got the job. But I still think there was a huge portion of the country that had kind of this sense of fear. And just from me being on the outside looking in, and in some cases being on the inside looking in as well, um, it seemed like that fear is now going away. It seems like people are becoming a bit more outspoken. It seems like the more he does maybe use his Twitter fingers that he's exposing himself, he's exposing the people that that's around him, and now people are feeling like, you know what, this guy is shaming himself and he's shaming this country in some aspects. So now maybe I can speak out or now maybe I am garnering a little bit more interest to actually speak out against what it is that's going on. So I don't know. Like, I just think that is really interesting where that sense of fear, while there is still some fear there, that it's turning into action mm -hmm. rather than turn, rather it being fear turning into just lay down and allow 
the abuse, if that's what you want to call it, happened. Right. Especially when you see people speaking out against Trump. It shows it can definitely be done and getting a lot of positive attention around it as well. I mean, going into these Olympics in Pyeongchang, we had Lindsey Vaughn, the great U.S. skier, right. who spoke out against President Trump and said that she was not going to be representing him by any means. She'd be representing the U.S. American people. It's interesting to me, though, I mean, let's be real for a second. Who does Trump attack on Twitter? It's black athletes. It's yeah. athletes of color. Yeah. Lindsey Vaughn says that? Nothing. Zero. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, you had, <laughs> you had a fencer, uh, two fencers, Rayson Bowden and Miles Chamley Watson, who had an international fencing tournament. They represent the U.S. fencing team. They went down on a knee during a fencing tournament in Cairo, in Egypt, right? Yeah. Away from the United States, which would usually generate a lot of pushback on right. the part of, you know, certainly our president, who doesn't shy away from attacking athletes. Zippo, yeah. nothing, right? Lindsey Vaughn, nothing. So, you know, there was actually, I, th I felt like a moment, and it still exists now moving into the future, where white athletes can speak out with a lot less pushback from the president. And maybe you should think about that. You know, if you're in a position and you're a white athlete, you should take advantage of that privilege to leverage it for the maximum social change you can get while you're still an athlete. Notwithstanding what I said before about not every athlete needs to be an active, athlete for sure. But hey, if you're a white athlete today, you're not going to get the same kind of pushback from the president most likely than you would if you were an athlete of color. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and you don't even have to, I guess you can be the dad of athletes of color as well if we yes. talk about LeVar Ball. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. We talk about LeVar Ball. But yeah, I actually do think that's interesting because it's, it's, it's just funny because you hear, you know, as we mentioned, obviously people like yourself and people like myself, um, we're not afraid to explode, I mean, to um, expose these black athletes receiving the pushback from the president. We're not afraid to talk about these types of things. Like I said, we're kind of, we've kind of entrenched ourselves into it where there's a lot of people that haven't. We're kind of, in some ways, voices for some people that don't feel like they can have a voice or don't feel like they do have a voice, even though I think they, they do if they look deep down enough. But, um, is there a responsibility for people that aren't of color? And like you said, not everybody, but people that may not be of color, do they hold some responsibility in this day and age when you do see the the, the kind of pattern mm -hmm. of Trump attacking a particular type or a particular group of people in comparison to another group of people, although you might not be a part of that group of people that's being attacked? Mm -hmm. No doubt. I mean, privilege. We're talking about privilege. Yeah. And largely white privilege, um, male privilege as well. And privilege comes with responsibility. And if you want to sit on the sidelines with all your privilege and not do anything, um, you're really missing a chance to kind of weigh in in a positive way and really understand what solidarity feels like in the real world. I mean, we're living in this incredible moment right now. Of the world sort of a geopolitical tinderbox. Yeah. The country seems to be like a perpetual dumpster fire. And, you know, you only have one chance in this world to weigh in. And, uh, you know, it's right now. Yeah. And if you sit along the sides and you're, you got all your white privilege and your male privilege, you're not doing a dang thing about it, I think it'd be a time to kind of have a little bit of a self examination. Yeah. And think a little bit more and think about how to get out in the world. And certainly if you're an athlete. Yeah. And you have even more privilege than the average person on the street. Um, it might behoove you to sort of step up your game a little bit off the court. Or yeah. Off the field. Right. Yeah. And I, like I said, I just think it's so interesting because you have some people that try to take 
the colorblind approach. And you have so many people that try to take, oh, I don't look at race. I look at, you know, people as human beings. And that's kind of their their exit from actually having to talk about the real issues that are at hand. That's kind of their way of saying, you know what, I don't really want to talk about this right now, but it's almost like that's the politically correct way of going about it. Oh, I don't look at color. I don't see mm-hmm. color. Oh, I don't, you know, I, I just care for people. I just care for you as a human being and myself as a human being. But I'm like, eh, it's a little bit more complex yeah. than that. Whether you like it or you don't like it, I, that's just an argument and kind of a statement that I, I'm not really a big fan of personally, yeah. but sometimes it may be a little bit harder for me to be a fan of that thought process because I am an African-American male mm-hmm. and I am facing these problems a bit more head on than maybe, I mean, and there may be somebody who has that privilege per se. No doubt. So, yeah. Well, I, that colorblind perspective is very much like a, I don't do cocaine. I just like the way it smells. <laughs> That was a, that was a good one. <laughs> I have a, I don't have white privilege. I just enjoy white privilege, right? right? So like I don't have a lot of patience for for that approach, especially because like you're talking about, you know, you're living it on an everyday basis. Right. You know, my daughter who's Native American, she's living it on right. an everyday basis, and right. so to just sort of back out and abdicate any kind of responsibility for the big and important conversations that are happening right now. I just don't have a lot of time for that. Honestly, you you, you just ended it right on the money there. That was a good one. That was a good one. But, uh, yeah, once again, thanks for joining us. And, you know, thanks for coming by. And, you know, we I I definitely appreciate you for always supporting. Obviously, you're somebody who I stay in close contact with, you know, and we we, we're kind of pushing for this thing, uh, you know, to just progress and get better. And like I said, I I just. I've gotten to a place where now I'm more so embracing these times. And I I don't think it was always like that for myself. I don't think it was always like that for many people, for people of color, you know, because there's been so many, not not even just people of color, all people from different walks of life that deal with any type of oppression, you know, systematic wise and just deal with many type of issues where there's a lack of equality in it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I just think it's interesting, man, because what I thought was going to be scary and which still is scary. I'm not I'm not diminishing the fact that we're still in some tough times. There's still some scary things happening around us. And I mean, even just being a little bit transparent uh, I was in the car with my brother last night and we were riding around and, and, and we were going to my house or something and we were in the car. We went to get something to eat and we're driving and a police officer drives by us and I had already I was driving. I was the driver. I had already kind of spotted the officer in my rear view and I just kind of you know, seeing that they were approaching. And so obviously I was a lot more cautious behind the wheel because of that. Everything's cool. License, good license plate. The every tags, good insured cars, insured. Everything is everything. Everything's a okay. But just kind of the feeling that I got and how kind of alert that I was. And I didn't even say anything to him. I got very alert behind the wheel. Uh, I was a, a lot more cautious than I would be if I was just casually driving down the street, which I was doing before I took notice that there was an officer nearby. And, you know, officer rolled right by us. And my brother was like, whoa, like he, he, never, he didn't know that the officer was riding by. And it was just interesting because for me, 
it, it was like there's no way that I wasn't doing anything wrong before I noticed the officer because if I was, the officer probably would have pulled me over. Obviously, I definitely do, didn't do anything wrong when I actually noticed that the officer was behind me or, you know, approaching and nearby. Like I said, I was alert and I sat straight up and made sure I was driving between the lines, made sure I wasn't speeding. Like I, I was like hyper alert, you know, when, when that happened. And then when he actually drove by, I had kind of a sigh of relief, yeah. but then my brother had like this kind of anxiety build up because he never actually noticed that the officer was in the area in the first place. And like I said, there was nothing wrong. Like there, like I said, it, there wasn't any, we were, we were sober. We, my license is all good. My car's insured to everything was good. Like, you know what I mean? But the fact that that anxiety came over me as I was talking to him about it, I'm like, that right there in itself is a problem. You know yeah, what I mean? Like no, that, that, that's a problem. Like yeah. it just shouldn't be that way. The fact that you kind of jumped the way that you did, like I noticed how he jumped once the officer was already past us. Like that in itself is just an issue. So, you know, like I said, somebody like myself and him may deal with that a little bit more head on. And it may be in a way that is unnoticed because he didn't notice the anxiety that I had when I, spotted the officer before he did and then when i noticed the anxiety that he had he was a lot more kind of out there with it in the comfort of our car you know what i mean so uh, i just feel like you know that part in itself is still scary mm -hmm. but the part of it that isn't becoming scary is that instead of laying down to that the first thing that came out of my mouth was like, that's a problem right there. That's why we push for equality. That's why, you know, we talk about these issues the way we're talking about them. That's why so much content is being released and so much pushback is happening when it comes to those type of issues, because that's just a problem. And, and if anybody should be or does feel okay with that, I, I don't know. What to, well, I'm going to tell you how I feel about it, but it's like that, that, just seems to me like common sense would tell you that that's an issue that mm -hmm. we even had to have those anxious feelings especially when we were we weren't guilty of anything right. you know what i mean yeah. so i appreciate you sharing that and yeah so the everyday effects of just everyday racism and the deep effects the total stress that it can induce I mean, it's really intense. I appreciate you laying that out for us. It's important to remember, it's not just the big things we see on TV. It's right. Everyday things for everyday people that really matter in this right. world, too. For sure, for sure. So, yeah, I, like I said, I just, that that just definitely was, it was crazy because this literally happened last night. Wow. And so, you wow. know, after us having the, the talks that we were having, and like I said, that part of it is definitely still scary. But there's another side to it that I'm attempting to embrace a bit more. You know, with actually speaking against, speaking against it or even telling that story here on the podcast, you know, because I'm pretty sure there's many more people that feel that same way mm -hmm. that may not feel like they have a voice or a platform to actually speak out against that or just speak out on their experiences. But that was just crazy, you know, how that kind of happened last night. Yeah. But once again, like I said, appreciate you for always supporting the podcast, for joining the podcast, for the work that you do, you know, uh, with, with this activism thing and, you know, especially in particular with the Olympics. I know you're you're a lot broader than that. You're not that shallow. I know, especially, but <laughs> but you, you definitely, you know, you specialize a 
bit um, in the Olympics. So, you know, keep up the great work that you're doing and we're glad you're able to join us, man. Thank you so much. It's always great to see you, Devon. For Thank sure. You. Indeed. Indeed. So we'll leave you all the only way that we know how, and that is to stay woke and go in.